Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Gardeners of the Galaxy, the podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I am Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. In this episode, I'm going to be giving you the buzz on bees in space. But before we get to that, let's catch up on the space news and then I'll answer another listener question in the FAQ section. The world's first wooden satellite is due to launch into a polar orbit on Rocket Lab's Electron rocket in November 2021. WESA Woodsat is a CubeSat designed by Arctic Astronautics, a Finnish company manufacturing CubeSat kits for students. The mission's primary aim is to test the behaviour and durability of plywood panels in space. Woodsat chief engineer Samuli Nyman explains that the base material for plywood is birch, and the satellite uses basically the same material that's used to make furniture. However, as ordinary plywood is too humid for space applications, Arctic astronautics place their wood in a thermal vacuum chamber to dry it out. The final step uses atomic layer deposition to add a very thin aluminium oxide layer. A pair of onboard cameras will monitor any changes to the plywood in flight. Woodsat will carry a radio payload, allowing amateurs to relay radio signals and images around the globe. To downlink data from this LoRa radio link involves buying a ground station costing as little as 10 euros. That's about 12 US dollars. ESA materials experts are helping with pre-flight testing and contributing a suite of experimental sensors to the mission. A pressure sensor will allow them to identify the local pressure in onboard cavities in the hours and days after launch into orbit. This is an important factor for the turn-on of high-power systems and radio frequency antennas because small amounts of molecules in the cavity can potentially cause them harm. And there's an LED with a photoresistor that senses as it lights up. But the LED is powered through a 3D printed electrically conductive plastic called polyether ether ketone, or PEAK. This trial opens up the prospect of printing power or even data links directly within the bodies of future space missions. Back in 2015, a crop of zinnias was growing in veggie, and the plants weren't doing very well. Fungal growth was causing leaves to curl and yellow and eventually die. So NASA astronaut Scott Kelly took over direct control of the veggie hardware, turned up the fan, and saved enough flowers to produce a Valentine's Day bouquet. Diseased tissue was returned to Earth for analysis in May 2016, and a new paper in Astrobiology details the results. The fungus responsible was Fusarium oxysporum, which acted as an opportunistic pathogen on severely high water stress plants. At the moment, researchers have not identified the source of the fungus. If you'd like to read the paper, it's called Fusarium oxysporum as an opportunistic fungal pathogen on zinnia hybrida plants grown on board the International Space Station, and I'll put a link in the show notes for you. An international team of researchers led by the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands has used a new bioprinting technique to print living artificial leaves made of algae and capable of photosynthesis. Printed on bacterial cellulose, the 3D printed microalgae is exceptionally durable. It can be used to harvest energy as sugars, which could then be converted into fuels. And since the microalgae are capable of photosynthesis, they'll produce oxygen as a byproduct, which may come in handy on Mars. I've mentioned before that Martian regolith is contaminated with toxic perchlorates. In episode 23, Morgan Irons talked about soils on Earth being contaminated with them too. 
A team of scientists has developed a bio-inspired catalyst that simplifies the perchlorate removal process and destroys 99% of the contaminant and ambient temperatures and pressures. Their work builds on past experiments using anaerobic microbes, tiny organisms that live in oxygen-poor environments. Some of these organisms survive by harvesting oxygen atoms from perchlorate, effectively breaking it down. It's possible to cultivate these microbes in industrial reactors, but it can take weeks or months. The new catalyst allows them to do their clean-up much quicker. The team are hoping to run some trials here on Earth. They've got some time to work out the kinks before we need to use it on Mars. That research is published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society with the title A Bio-Inspired and Catalyst for Aqueous Perchlorate Reduction. And I'll put the link in the show notes. University of Southern Queensland scientists from the Centre for Agricultural Engineering have been awarded an Australian Space Agency grant to develop machine vision software to detect early stress in plants being grown in space. Their research will allow better monitoring of crops grown in veggie units and the advanced plant habitat. The project is due to run for 12 months, so hopefully we will see some results next year. I'm Emma the Space Gardener, and you're listening to Gardeners of the Galaxy. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I have been answering listener questions about space plants. Today's question comes from Julia Maddock, who asks, how do you pollinate plants in space? Now, that is a brilliant question. So let's start with the basics and look at how pollination happens on Earth. Pollination is when pollen from the male parts of a flower is transferred to the female parts of a flower. The goal is to fertilise the female flower to form seeds for the next generation. Now, plants have evolved various methods to get the job done. Some rely on the wind to blow light pollen grains around, hoping that some will land in the right place. Those of you who suffer from hay fever no doubt curse this strategy every spring. A more targeted approach encourages an animal to transfer the pollen, usually with some sort of sugary reward. While we're familiar with the role of bees in pollination, a wide range of insects and animals act as pollinators. Some have a close relationship with one species of flower, while others are generalists. The vanilla orchid, for example, is only pollinated by one species of bee native to its Mexican homeland. Some plant species can self-pollinate, removing the need for a pollination partner. Of those, some are more productive if the flowers are pollinated. So what happens in space? Clearly, we don't want insects buzzing around the International Space Station, and although there is forced air movement by fans, pollen flying around wouldn't be good either. A third option is to have the crew pollinate the plants by hand, but that's a time-consuming business. If we go back to the vanilla orchid, Europeans in the 19th century were keen to expand production of this valuable commodity into their colonies in the East Indies and beyond. However, although the plants grew, without their pollination partner, they didn't produce any vanilla. By 1841, the problem had been solved by a 12-year-old slave boy on the island of Réunion called Edmund Albius. Having carefully studied the anatomy of the vanilla flowers, Albius developed a clever technique for pollinating them that involves a small stick, which is still in use today. The manual labour involved in pollinating vanilla is one factor that makes it expensive. It also needs extensive processing, and most vanilla flavouring is synthetic. In April this year, NASA's Mike Hopkins pollinated Pak Choi plants in the veggie growing system using a small paintbrush. It led to a high seed production rate. However, there wasn't enough experiment time remaining to let the seeds mature. It wasn't the point of the experiment. 
Astronauts are always short on time, so hand pollination is manageable for small experiments like this, but wouldn't be practical for large-scale crops. So far, NASA has confined its edible crops to leafy greens that don't need pollination, but as they want to expand into fruit crops such as peppers and tomatoes, they will need pollination strategies. In the last episode, we heard NASA's Jacob Torres explain that his team hopes that varying the fan controls on the advanced plant habitat will be enough to pollinate the chilli peppers growing inside. And since then, a news report in the Rio Grande Sun has confirmed that the experiment will start in July 2021. It's also possible that future space crops will be pollinated by robot bees. Researchers are working on them, mainly for use on Earth in case our careless handling of the environment wipes out all of our natural pollinators. That technology is still in its infancy though, so for the moment any space plants that need pollination have to rely on an astronaut to do the job for them. Thanks to Julia Maddock for sending in another great question. If you have a question about space plants, then let me know. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Orbital Gardens. Gardeners of the Galaxy has its own Facebook page, or you can send an email to earth at spacebotany.uk. Could future space explorers use bees to pollinate their crops? Let's take a look at how our buzzing garden buddies have fared during their space missions so far. According to NASA, about 80% of plants on Earth, including 450 crop plants, depend on a pollination partner. Bats pollinate more than 300 fruit species. But in the US, the primary pollinators are honeybees, with managed hives adding $15 billion to crop values every year by improving yield and quality. Wild pollinators, primarily bees, add another $9 billion. And there's a commonly quoted statistic that pollinators, including bees, assist in one-third of global food production. It's often said that bees contribute to one in three mouthfuls of food, but that's also disputed. Given their importance to agriculture on Earth, it's not surprising that we might want to take bees to other planets with us. What is surprising is that all of the experiments investigating that so far have been run by students. The first time bees became insectonauts was in 1982 when they joined the crew of Space Shuttle Columbia for the STS-3 mission. The name of that experiment was Insect Flight Observation at Zero Gravity and it was part of NASA's Shuttle Student Involvement Program, the SSIP. The experiment aimed to observe and compare the flight of three different insect species in microgravity. The three insects chosen, common houseflies, velvet bean caterpillar moths and worker honeybees, fly differently. The experiment took place in a special insect flight box and the honeybees had their stings clipped so that the crew wouldn't be at risk if they escaped from the box. The 14 bees that went into space were adults, about six days old, when they were loaded into the box. The box itself had smooth plastic walls but was divided into two chambers by a mesh screen down the middle. Observations showed that the bees couldn't cling to the plastic and could only walk on the screen. They made brief attempts at flight which resulted in unstable flight patterns, tumbling and just floating. The conclusion was that they were less suited to life in zero-g than the flies and the moths. However, it may not have been that simple. By the time the box was opened, eight hours after the shuttle had landed, all of the bees inside were dead. And seven of the twelve bees in the ground control experiment were also dead. Honeybees typically live around six weeks, but their mission had only been eight days. An analysis of the dead bees showed no signs of disease and suggested that they starved to death. An examination of the sugar solution supplied to feed them indicated that it was too dilute to sustain them for nine days. All in all, it wasn't a successful mission for the first bees in space. Two 
years later, honeybees had a more successful flight on Space Shuttle Challenger during its STS-41C mission. Another SSIP experiment, this one was designed to investigate what effect microgravity had on honeycomb structure. It was called a comparison of honeycomb structures built by Apis mellifera. A new bee enclosure module, BEM, was designed for this experiment. Made from aluminium, it contained a feeder trough and three wooden honeycomb frames. There was also a flight chamber and a ventilation system. One BEM flew in space and another stayed on the ground for a control experiment. 3,400 worker bees and one queen were loaded into each BEM. They were given a sugary solution mixed with agar, which made it solid enough to keep it in place in microgravity. This time the bees fared better. The crew noted that they got the hang of flying in microgravity before the end of their seven-day mission. Most bees survived, with 120 dead space bees and 350 casualties in the ground control experiment. The queen bee in space laid 35 eggs, but they didn't hatch back on Earth for unknown reasons. The space bees built around 200 centimetres of honeycomb and used it to store some sugar syrup. However, the ground control bees didn't produce any honeycomb. Despite the technicians' best efforts, they couldn't keep their box warm enough. The results suggested that any future honeybee experiments have a longer duration and a more extensive flight compartment to observe their flight better. But the experiment did show that, with their needs adequately met, honeybees could go about their business in space. The next bees in space were from a different species. Students from Liechtenstein chose to study three Arizona carpenter bees in their country's first space experiment. Dubbed the Spice Bees Experiment, its aim was to examine the feeding behaviour of carpenter bees in microgravity. Carpenter bees don't build hives, but chew tunnels into wood to lay their eggs. The Spice Bees were given a balsa wood block and began their 15-day space mission in January 2003 on Space Shuttle Columbia. During the mission, the students received some video and photos downlinked from the shuttle. They concluded that the bees were significantly more active in microgravity. Their plan was to examine the balsa wood block when it returned to Earth to see how much wood the bees had eaten. Sadly, however, the STS-107 mission was lost during re-entry, killing both the crew and the spice bees. It wasn't until 2018 that bees visited the International Space Station. Team Ness, a group of girls from different high schools in Illinois, launched their experiment on SpaceX CRS-15 in June 2018. The official title of their experiment was Mega Chili Rotundata, Prioperception and Flight Patterns in Microgravity, and its aim was to observe the behaviour and flight patterns of alfalfa leaf-cutting bees in space. Five bees, still in cocoon form, launched to the ISS in a box. After they emerged from their cocoons, the student researchers observed them for 30 days via cameras. They planned to record a 30-second video, take still images of the bees, and compare them to footage taken in a ground control experiment. The comparison would show how the bees' flight patterns, feeding patterns, behaviour and interactions changed in space. Not only was this the first time for bees on the ISS, but it was also the longest space bee experiment to date. However, only one out of the five bees emerged from its cocoon while on the ISS, meaning the investigation gave limited results. So it looks as though the jury is still out as to whether we'll be taking our buzzing buddies with us when we form off-world communities, or whether we'll need alternative strategies for pollination. Not every aspiring insectonaut gets to go into space. In 2012, Dutch researchers investigated how well bumblebees would get on in the kind of low-pressure environments they would probably have to live in on other planets. 
And in 2019, analog astronauts in the Lunaris research station in Poland carried out two experiments to study how well honeybees would fare in a Martian garden. You can find out more about those experiments in the latest edition of the Gardeners of the Galaxy email newsletter, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes for you. Research shows that all over the world, bees and other pollinating insects are struggling. Wildlife-friendly farming and gardening can benefit pollinators, particularly growing patches of wild plants and weeds. We're used to seeing pictures of gorgeous gardens that don't have a blade of grass out of place, but personally, I'm happy with my messier garden. When the dandelions pop up in spring, they're an early source of food for the bees. A couple of years ago, a weed I can't even name brought hawk moth caterpillars into the garden. I struggle to grow borage, but it self-seeds in the garden, so I let it grow where it wants to. This year, there's a plant in the courgette bed, which is absolutely crawling with bees when it's sunny. They also love the comfrey, so I let that flower and then try to remember to cut it back before it seeds everywhere. My new greenhouse has corrugated polycarbonate glazing. A blue mason bee, that's a solitary bee, has laid her eggs in one of the corrugations. They're currently at the larval stage and it's really fascinating watching them grow. And Ryan and I are very lucky to live near an open space managed with wildlife in mind. For the last few years, grass areas have been left unmowed through the spring and summer. This allows wildflowers to emerge and foster an environment that's great for bees, butterflies and other insects. It's also home to expanding populations of native orchids, and I recently posted some photos of those on the blog. Of course, it's not enough to plant the flowers. You also have to make sure they're not toxic. So the first step in becoming a bee-friendly gardener is to ditch the pesticides. The result is a garden that may not look perfect to us, but is absolutely teeming with life. That's it for this show. You'll find the show notes on my website, theunconventionalgardener.com. Gardeners of the Galaxy is nearly a year old. I have really enjoyed producing the show and I can only hope that you are enjoying listening to it. The amount of work that's involved in creating an episode means that, at the moment, I can only record one show every two weeks. I hope that it will become a weekly show one day, but to do that, I'll need your help. If you're able to make a financial contribution to the show, you can sign up as a regular supporter at patreon.com forward slash gardeners of the galaxy and access extended episodes and bonus content. If you prefer to make a one-off contribution, there's a virtual tip jar on my website. Thank you to everyone who has supported the show. I really, really appreciate it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 26. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control, confirming termination of your signal. We have activated the auto kettle and you are T minus three minutes. Mission control out.